Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. John Semley, Canadian freelance writer currently defected to Philadelphia, author of the book Hater, The Virtues of Utter Disagreeability. You've come to the right place. Hi, John. Hi, good to be here. I should clarify that I'm uh, technically a Canadian tourist visiting a friend in the United States. That's for Border Services. We're going to talk about Jordan Peterson's new social media platform, which bans photos, memes, and emojis in the name of anti-censorship. And if you are in massive debt and insufficiently ashamed, well, the Toronto Star is here to help you feel like total dog shit. Which Atkinson principle is that exactly? John, good to have you here. Good to be here. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Jessica Watani Campbell, Dave Steinberg, Mathieu Charon, Bill Evans, David Harder, Matthew Hendrickson, Rose Kazeel, and Nicholas. This is Nicholas in Victoria. I've been a patron of Canada Land since 2016 because I want to support this new kind of business model that can be relatively free from external influences. And I'm going to keep supporting it, even though the extreme wokeness of some of Jesse's guests really makes me cringe sometimes. We're going to talk about Jordan Peterson. We're going to talk about Jordan Peterson because he became uh, outraged with the uh, censorship on internet platforms like Patreon, which he abandoned and, and, and announced that he was going to start his own alternative 
you know, there was all this deplatforming stuff when people like Faith Goldie were getting kicked off of YouTube and others. And uh, he did it. He launched this thing. It's not just a Patreon alternative, but it's a it's a uh, content platform called ThinkSpot. And it's been in beta testing. You have to have an invite to get on. And uh, a bunch of writers and journalists kind of snuck on and wrote about it. John, you've written about this. Can you explain to me what ThinkSpot is? Yeah, so as you said, ThinkSpot is kind of a mix between Patreon, meaning that it's a funding platform where these uh, creators, they like to call themselves, uh, can be paid for their totally generic, uh, uninteresting status quo insights. Uh, And it's also a form of a social media platform. It kind of resembles something very like Web 1.0, where you watch... Uh, videos or you read articles and you can sort of comment on them and get in discussions in a discussion board fashion. Uh, And you also have the opportunity to annotate articles, uh, which is a thrill for anyone with an academic pedigree to sort of add your own footnotes and citations to articles. And as you mentioned, it is in beta testing. I got an invite from uh, fellow Canada land Confederate Sean Craig uh, and kind of stuck on, but actually just today, my legitimate invite came in because I signed up for the beta very early, but yeah, I had an opportunity to sort of fool around on it and wrote about it for the guardian. Um, yeah, I have many thoughts, (laughs) many thoughts about it. Can I, can I do something? I've sort of prepared something, uh, for this, which is that every week ThinkSpot sends out the, the TS Weekly Digest, which is the highlights of all the exciting and diverse uncensored conversations they're having on ThinkSpot. By all means. The highlights of this week, you have Jordan Peterson, Free Speech and Social Justice, Bettina Arndt, Dr. Quentin Van Meter on Transgender Medicine Fraud, The Postmillennial, Gender, Race, and Identity with Douglas Murray. You, you might notice a theme here. Other highlights, Jordan Peterson, personality differences between men and women, Dr. Stephen Hicks, data on sex slash gender role reinforcement, and Jordan Peterson, heated debate on gender pronouns and free speech. Uh, It just kind of goes on like this. You can join a conversation on the trans crusade and how it creates a counterfactual world. So you can see these sort of themes that tend to emerge in uh, the intellectual dark web skepticism, you might say, about trans movements reiterating that men and women are biologically different and how that should be sort of reinforced in the social world. So it's not exactly this sort of wide ranging free market of ideas uh, by any stretch, at least not yet. John, lest we uh, assume that everyone knows what this uh, this term means, can you what, what is the intellectual dark web? Oh, sure. So the intellectual dark web is this sort of ludicrous, uh, self-fabulating term for a group of people who, again, believe that their opinions have been marginalized And again, these are the most like status quo opinions, like anti-Islamist, anti-trans, anti-immigration, you know, essentially people who have the same opinions as like a drunk uncle-in-law at a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, But, you know, they believe that they're being censored and marginalized. Really, they're just disliked. They're not meaningfully censored. Uh, So the intellectual dark web or the IDW is the sort of ludicrous, dorky banner under which they unite. I'm sorry if I can't take it seriously and I'm editorializing a bit, but it is. uh, Yeah, it's the stupidest people operating under the stupidest possible name. Well, let me look it up here. And the no, no, that is the technical definition. That was uh, accurate. Thank you. Yeah, they've never read a book since the Enlightenment. They're so pro-Enlightenment. They don't understand the entire history of the Counter-Enlightenment, which is like 300 years old, and they don't care to. I don't know. They're the most tedious people imaginable. Uh, when I have a heart attack and die at age 37, it's going to be because I've been 
reading intellectual dark web websites too much. I think at a certain point, if you oppose postmodernism to to, to a, such a you know extreme extent, you become kind of like a pre-modernist. Oh yeah, and while having absolutely no idea whatsoever what postmodernism means, except they know they don't like it because it means I don't know that there might be women or trans people in their university classes. I don't know what they think. If I can be disagreeable here, I, I don't mean to interrupt you dunking on this ridiculous content, but in sort of like an earlier phase of my uh, intellectual development uh, and, and my free speech advocacy, the idea that everybody should have a voice and a place to go, and if you don't like it, don't participate, was kind of a sacrosanct for me. And uh, and then that kind of evolved over the years because we share these platforms of, of Twitter and YouTube and they just sort of become almost like the public square. It's, it's sad that we have these corporatized privately owned um, public squares. But I had to kind of like rethink what it means to 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 have total unmitigated access to free speech when that meant just getting piled on by uh, people, abusive, racist comments, death threats, misogyny, rape threats, you know, everything that made the Internet miserable for so many people. And then you get ThinkSpot, which is like a place for these people to go and hang out with each other. Can I applaud this? It, it sounds like a terrible website where you actually have to pay to, to comment. You have to pay per thinker. And, and Jordan Peterson is the most expensive thinker. You can subscribe to Peterson for 120 bucks. His daughter was on there for 70. And then I think that just for the sake of looking like it actually was this free speech zone, they had like a, a left-wing thinker for 30 bucks a year who has since pa packed up his insights and left. Yeah. But let them have ThinkSpot. Well, go to, th you know, good. That was kind of the conclusion I came to in my Guardian article. I, I compared it to the... Uh the fake birthday cake that Marge makes for Maggie so that Homer will kind of ruin this fake cake and not eat Maggie's birthday cake. That's what ThinkSpot, Quillette, and all these websites are to me. They're these sort of uh, little discourse sandboxes where people who have been justifiably exiled from mainstream media can sort of talk amongst themselves and annotate their little articles and, you know, trade $5 back and forth between each other for their totally meaningless insights. Uh, but, you know, to give ThinkSpot its due, there were some people on there I liked. I mean, David Pakman, who you sort of mentioned, he's since left, but he was on there. I agree, it was a little tokenizing, but... Uh, the Partially Examined Life, which is a philosophy podcast I've been listening to for years. I mean, they're very active on ThinkSpot. So it does have potential, but I wonder, you know, when you see the type of people who tend to be attracted to this, who are either people in Jordan Peterson's orbit or his fans or sycophants and, or his daughter, who's the second most expensive, priciest person on there, uh, you tend to wonder how open it really is. And also, I hasten to add None of these people are being meaningfully censored. I know literally everything that Jordan Peterson thinks about any subject on planet Earth before ThinkSpot even existed. Stefan Molyneux, who is the most active user on ThinkSpot. Again, you can get these people's content anywhere. So I'm not sure the extent to which they're being meaningfully censored uh, unless, you know, they were banned from Twitter for two weeks. But even Faith Goldie's back on Twitter. I saw her sort of chirping you this week. Oh, yeah. She, she called me a, uh, a whiny Jewish journalist shekel collecting merchant. Mm. Uh, but don't call her a Nazi. Um, as you mentioned, Stefan Molyneux, who's a Canadian YouTuber, white nationalist, uh, alleged cult leader. He's the most active user on things. But it's interesting. You create a space where people can, can say anything and enjoy their freedom of speech. And the top users very quickly in beta testing become uh, white nationalists. There's an anti-vaxxer. There's a Catholic pro-life gun owner, uh, anti-psychiatrist uh, crusaders. It's 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 incredible how limited like you talk about anything. You're finally free. 
And not only can we guess, I forget like where on the political spectrum these ideas come, they're not ideas that you have any trouble finding. As you say, John, these are not censored ideas or, or really dangerous ideas that you have to like, you, you need to kind of carve out some, some safe space for because uh, elsewhere. No, I mean, like these are like the easiest things you could possibly find on the internet. But God bless them. Let them have things spot. Let them eat their, uh, their fake birthday cake. What I want to talk about, because I think, I think that like to kind of, we had to apply, you know, media criticism to Peterson stuff when he's like a columnist in the National Post. And when these, when these kind of ridiculous idiotic ideas are increasingly mainstreamized, but Jordan Peterson is employed in some form or has some kind of contract with Post Media. We haven't confirmed that ThinkSpot is in any way affiliated with Post Media. We haven't falsified that either. We don't really know one way or the other. I kind of suspect that this is not a Post Media project. But uh, I, I can say that Post Media's interest in Jordan Peterson and why they have a business relationship with him, and this is something that I want to uh, uh, explore, is because they, like all newspapers that are struggling to figure out a way forward, are recognizing the new dynamics. And the new dynamics are, A, you need paid subscription, you need paid readership, you can't rely on advertising as your exclusive way of getting revenue, and, and B, that's really hard for a newspaper because people are much more likely to open up their wallets for like one personality, like one guy, like Jordan Peterson can get a bigger subscriber base than potentially an entire newspaper or newspaper chain. And so they are very interested in what, what we can do. Can we, you know, can we kind of reform the columnist thing around Jordan Peterson and people like that? Uh, they're simultaneously struggling to not turn their newspaper chain into a weirdo fringe safe space for anti-vaxxers and anti-trans people and intellectual dark web types. But, you know, like, I, I, I don't know that they can have that cake and eat it, too, to extend this cake talk. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the post, the relationship between the post and Peterson, I mean, when, again, Sean Craig wrote that first article about Jordan Peterson opposing Bill C-16, Nobody knew who he was. I mean, I was lecturing at U of T and occasionally a student would be like, you know, Professor Peterson says we shouldn't be learning about postmodernism. I'm like, who the fuck's that? Don't listen to him. Listen to me. Uh, but as soon as Sean Craig's article came out, everyone at the Post was writing about Peterson. Like they, they made a meal out of him. And of course, then he wrote his little tour diaries where he was going around Europe and recounting sort of dreams he had where he was getting in fistfights with people who didn't like him. And this took up serious column inches at a newspaper. So I think that the Post has certainly tried to hitch their wagon to him. But I don't know. As far as ThinkSpot being a model for saving newspapers, I really don't think so. Unless you get, I don't know, Andrew Coyne, the Globe's new star columnist, doing a Michaela Peterson style beef jerky recipe video. Uh, I don't know. Does that just put asses in the seats? How, how does Andrew Coyne stay so svelte? I would pay to know. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what 
Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. John Semley, I understand that you've brought two duly noteds with you today. Yeah, I did. I mean, I love to duly note things. It's just fun. It's <laughs> just fun. You do one, and then I'll do one, and then you do one is kind of how we do it. First, I'd like to duly note an article of the Washington Post by Canadian uh, public enemy number one, Nora Loretto, called Why Canada's Hockey Culture Shouldn't Be a Stand-In for Its Identity. Um, now, Nora actually is one of those people who's usually a a target of the intellectual dark web of the post-millennial types. She sort of followed up on the uh, Don Cherry scandal to interrogate uh, the way that sort of issues of race and class and identity are articulated through Canada's myth of hockey and hockey supremacy. Uh, And I think it was a really good article, the sort of article where if it was ever published in a Canadian publication would probably be talked about for weeks on end. And I think the reason I liked it is, you know, this whole Don Cherry thing it kind of became a flash in the pan. He's gone. We haven't really talked about it. But it, it was classic sort of scapegoating, not in the sense that Don Cherry wasn't guilty, but in the sense that he was sort of cast out and then the myth of hockey itself was restored. But I think it's worth interrogating this myth of hockey, why we care about it, what it represents to Canadians, how it sort of expresses a very kind of white, middle-class Canadian identity. And frankly, because I'm a little annoyed at Nora because she published this before I could publish a similar article that I've been working on. So I at once praise her and curse her name. <laughs> I'll praise her uh, and and uh, I'll say this, you know, I, I have, I'm critical of her at times. You can say a lot of things about Nora, but you can't say that she lacks courage because uh, criticizing the hockey myth of Canada is what uh, brought upon her an onslaught of hate, the likes of which I've never experienced in in my uh, career commenting on things publicly. And uh, for her to return and have the courage of her convictions to continue to comment on that in the face of that, I think, takes no small amount of guts. Jesse, it's almost as if there's a double standard regarding how women are treated online versus men. But I don't know. I'll get on ThinkSpot and draft something about it. Duly noted. Let me know uh, how much you'll want for that. I'll, I'll subscribe. Uh, I have a, a, uh, a thing to share, John, and that is, um, I don't know, it's a little thing. It was pointed out by others. Chris Selly uh, noted this. Um, it was a uh, headline from CBC News where they wrote, Minister of Middle Class Prosperity, Mona Fortier, says an average family will keep $600, blah, 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 blah. And uh, he, he, he plucked that out and said, wait a second. 
we're, we're actually going to call her that. And uh, and others uh, in the media said, like, we're, we're under no obligation to call her that. This is a made up term, as many have observed from the Trudeau government. Now, they can do that formally, like like when they renamed the Ministry of Industry, the Ministry of Innovation, Science and Economic Development. And then journalists kind of have no choice like that. They if they're going to go to the trouble and change the stationery and, uh, and, you know, like like that's what it's called. And there is a minister of innovation now. There is no ministry of middle class prosperity. That is government propaganda. And we are under no obligation to use that term. Every time you use that term, especially if you put it in a headline, you are giving like official formal status to something that is purely a politicized piece of propaganda. And I just think I just wish we would think more critically about these things because you sort of set standards. You do it once and then and then it's just like that's the way it's going to be forevermore and not just in this administration but what you know that now becomes a thing that government can do is just is just fabricate these names and have the media just repeat them ad nauseum duly noted i agree in a sense i mean i actually think that minister of middle class prosperity sounds so stupid and like it's like a monty python joke about sovietism but eventually we won't blink at it it'll be like saying president donald trump where now we're just forced to say it with a straight face john what is your uh, what is your next duly noted Oh, the Selenaissance or the Dionysance. What are people calling it? Celine Dion is cool now. Uh, and you've seen a lot of articles about this over the past couple of years. There's obviously Carl Wilson's book, Let's Talk About Love, which is sort of the core text, not just it being like Celine Dion is cool, but interrogating the reasons why people thought she wasn't for so long. And she had a new album out. There was a big buzz around it. And that album had one of the most uh, precipitous declines on the Billboard charts in history, going from number one to, I believe, 111 in one week. And that, well, first of all, it only went to number one because I believe digital copies of the album came through, bought tickets to her concert. Anyways, to me, it sort of casts in relief how popular she really is, or rather that maybe we can't use traditional metrics like album sales to chart that popularity. Uh, but I just think that, you know, for years now, Canadian media especially has been, you know, dining out on this idea of the Celine Dion renaissance. And I think that this sort of decline shows that it might be made up. It might just be a sort of uh, a media story that we've all kind of bought into. So if I can track this properly, John, uh, Celine Dion, of course, became incredibly popular. There was a big backlash to that where she became synonymous with tacky, cheap, shitty music. Then there was a backlash to that when Carl Wilson uh, wrote his book, uh, Let's Talk About Love, about how actually, let's be optimistic about this. There's nothing wrong with loving Celine Dion, you fucking raucist snobs. And uh, we've sort of been in that Celine that, that had momentum. And in the years since that book was published, uh, sort of universal acclaim. Let's reclaim Celine. Let's have a Selenaissance. I'm looking at a headline right now. Celine Dion is chilling with the Raptor, rocking the world's largest championship ring. Everybody loves Celine Dion again. It's cool to love Celine Dion. And now you're coming forth, hater, with the backlash to the backlash to the backlash. It's okay to hate Celine Dion once again. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I appreciate that she's become a bit of a meme since her sort of uh, her husband passed on and she's kind of been, you know, in the media. It's almost like a kid whose parents are out of town and they're just kind of doing whatever. And she seems to be having fun and acting like a teenager. I can appreciate that as much as everyone else. But, yeah, th this sort of this sort of pressure that you're a grump or a curmudgeon if you're not down with Celine Dion. I don't know. Call me a grump or a curmudgeon, but I think I'm not alone because I think that she's not as popular as we're being led to believe. Godspeed. Duly noted. 
John, for our last topic today, I I, I want to kind of provide some context here. I think that the, like the biggest piece of context here is that the credit industry, the lending industry, the credit card industry is predatory, usurious, and like it's just something that we need journalistic scrutiny on because far from the old days where they wanted to give credit to people who could actually pay off their debts, it now seems to be like really heavily fueled by preying on people who can't. And I, I have observed and I've, 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 I've read about this when I have an opportunity to and just known through people like I, like the first time I was offered a credit card was when I was a student who had no income and they were offering me one in my university every day. And then when I actually got out of school and had income, I couldn't get one, you know, and, and you just I know this through like people I know and through having researched this, the more in the hole you get. There are more people trying to get you further in the hole at worse and worse interest rates. And I just think that this is like a huge thing that we don't talk enough about. That is context number one. Context number two is just sort of how the Toronto Star, as a newspaper that I think has a methodology and a voice that is about looking at broader social issues from the perspective of, you know, working class, middle class families, uh, and I think has a fine history of doing that to good effect most of the time, the way that they'll talk about something is like, well, why does this matter to me? And they'll start a story by introducing you to a regular person affected by a problem. Okay. These are established things. We all know what I just said. With that in mind, I want to laser in on a series of investigative pieces in the Toronto Star, some of which were done in collaboration with La Presse. Uh, so Jesse McLean has a byline on all of them. He's an investigative reporter with the Star. Uh, Katia Gagnon from La Presse. Uh, David Bruiser, who's a longtime investigative reporter with the Star. So they've been writing these articles about this, uh, the ongoing problem of uh, multiple bankruptcies. And... I got to tell you, this is an instance where the methodology of starting with the individual, I think, has just failed catastrophically because what you get in these articles are these poor bastards are photographed looking like really sad and sorry, staring off into the middle distance. One of them is kind of like snapped as if he's like a criminal, like coming out of a courthouse or something. It's all told through the lens of miserable debtors who have been bankrupt multiple times being exposed. And of course, like because this has resulted in court cases, all of their information of their personal finances is public. And there's just this tone when they can't pay their debt, who covers the cost? reads the headline. I'm not going to repeat their names. Like they're really named and shamed in this. And there are these photographs of them just looking like, you know, like they, they've done something terribly wrong. And these are regular people. There's uh, a cook who's profiled and a judge is quoted. Um, Enabling this man to have access to credit would be akin to providing a firearm to a child. He could not be trusted to live within his means. There's a Hamilton contractor described by one judge as a menace to the credit system. Uh, there's another guy. Uh, he's never earned more than $20,000 a year, but that didn't stop this Montreal truck driver from obtaining a mortgage, a car loan for an Audi SUV, two lines of credit, and eight credit cards. All he had to do was lie. He said it was all to fund a fruitless attempt to win back his wife. Uh, the article in, in, in collaboration with La Presse, uh, the branches of this other guy's family's family tree have gnarled through Canada's bankruptcy system time and time again. Eventually, in these articles, we get to the fact that there is a credit industry that, like, if you take out a payday loan and you don't pay back at all and the fines accumulate, you could be paying 1,100% interest, okay? There, there is, like, a mention that these credit cards are preying on these people, but 
the the focus of these articles is on how these people are abusing the system. And I don't mean to like erase the idea of personal responsibility, but the real headline here is that people are finding it harder and harder. You know, wages have not kept up with inflation and it's just easier than ever to go into debt and to go into debt again. And it's just like a lot of these people, you get the feeling, don't even understand what they were getting into. I was I was kind of I was disgusted by the, the 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 tone and the framing of these articles. And uh, I wanted to talk about it with you, John. Maybe I'm a bit more hard hearted than you, but I think the stories they chose. I mean, yeah, they're kind of naming and shaming. But the guy who takes out a lease and an Audi and all this to win his wife back, you know, they talked to a man, I believe, from Pakistan who's like he had no idea how credit works. I mean, that's something I can be more sympathetic towards. But they have people in here by their own admission are like there's one guy who's an accountant. He's like, yeah, I can manage other people's books, but I'm terrible with credit. I mean, whatever. Maybe this is just the Ontario dad part of my mind where it's like you pay off your balance. If you can't pay off your balance, you pay the minimum. I mean, you're calling credit cards usurious as if it's an insult. It's literally their business model. Of course, they're usurious. This reminds me of like uh, the sketch from Mr. Show where the government has to print on money. Warning, money is not yours after you spend it. Uh, I, I think that, yeah, credit card companies and the, the very idea of credit is sort of predicated on being predatory and uh, taking advantage of people and hoping they don't pay it back and that they have to pay back more and more interest. That is sort of the tacit uh, agreement that you enter into when you get a credit card. So, I mean, as much as I don't think that you know people should be going into, into debt and bankruptcy and all this, I do think that there's a measure of personal responsibility involved and that if you filed for bankruptcy multiple times, you can't allege that you don't know that this is going to happen. Ah, but what's the public interest in exposing and shaming these people? You know, as, as uh, I, I got to go there, speaking as a Jew, John, wow. uh, people who were not allowed into other professions and the church wouldn't allow Christians to lend money to each other. Uh, this is like something that is needed for people to start businesses in the first place. Okay. And it is, it's, it's, uh, in, in, in a system where we actually have a marketplace, it's, it's a necessity, uh, especially for any kind of class mobility. So it is not by definition predatory. Uh, it is predatory in a modern context to an extent that it has never been before. And my problem is a, I don't know what is gained or what the public gets out of exposing these people and B, the way that the star justifies this shaming is uh, to suggest that we are the victims, that other people who actually pay their credit down uh, are the victims of these people's multiple bankruptcies. And that's, ex that's explicit in these articles that somehow the 18% I pay on my credit card if I'm late, like, what, what's the idea? That would be less if these people were better at paying off their bills? That's bullshit. A big part of the, the whole business plan of credit cards and why they give you your points and your travel miles and all this shit is that they make a lot more money when you don't pay your credit card bills and your ability to get a good credit card gets harder and harder the worse a credit risk you become and the higher your interest rates are. So this is how they operate. And, you know, I think that like this is a job for public interest journalism to ask, where's the regulation? How has this gotten so out of hand? And can't this be kept in check with things like inflation and wage deflation and things like that? Yeah, well, let me, let me just say, first of all, <laughs> regarding the entry of Jews into the financial system, I'm not saying usurious in a moral way where I'm saying that interest is immoral. This isn't the Merchant of Venice or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, oh, I, I, I know what you I'm just saying John. in a legal sense, it is usury. Uh, 
And let me just say that as a Catholic or as a lapsed Catholic, shame can be a very efficient motivator. The idea that, you know, you could end up looking like a moron or your picture will be published in the paper if you file for bankruptcy. Maybe it's an incentive to not take out seven or 18 credit cards. I agree with you that it's a little lurid and it's sort of uh, looking at these people a little unfairly and and, and making them feel bad. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's like any sort of money diary thing that these publications do where there's a level of perverse fascination with it, where I read this and I'm like, what are you doing? You're you're leasing an Audi just to impress a woman who already doesn't love you and then complaining about debt. Uh, so I, I guess there's sort of that level at which it operates for me too, the sort of salacious perversity that I relish in. Values are Canada Land Shortcuts for this week. Uh, people can reach me at jesse at canadalandshow.com, and I read every email that I receive. Where can people find you, John Semley? They can find me on Twitter at johnsemley3000. Uh, yeah, or where do I write these days? I'm a columnist for The Baffler. Check that out. I don't know. I'm always doing stuff. You can go to johnsemley.ca or johnsemley.porn uh, to read my John Semley takedown. Uh, by the end of the day. Johnsomely.idw, get that one. IDW. You can find Canada Land at canadalandshow.com where there is, uh, well, we got an episode of Wag the Doug uh, this week that you really should listen to um, to keep track of like some of the baffling things that are happening here in Ontario and a new episode of Commons series Dynasties on the Demaray Dynasty. Check that out. We are also on Twitter at Canada Land. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is taken care of by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Check them out at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, or if you want to give somebody a gift subscription to Canada Land so they can get ad-free podcasts, that is possible at patreon.com slash Canada Land. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.